Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today we continue our celebration, I guess, of Civilization V Bright New World uh, by welcoming to the show two of the uh, minds behind the expansion. Uh, first, we have Firaxis's Ed Beach, lead designer on Civilization Brave New World, and Dennis Shirk, uh, senior producer on Brave New World. Uh, Ed, Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. Thanks a lot, everyone. I think to you know just jump into it right away and and starting with you, Ed. We've talked a lot about Civilization Five on the show in the last couple of years, and one of the things that we always felt was a mixed blessing, I suppose, about Civ Five is that uh, John Schaefer's original design for the game uh, was extremely uh, extremely neat, extremely tidy. Also very demanding. It required basically crafting a really strong game plan based around your civilization's uh, unique ability, and really you know choosing your choosing your victory almost from the start, and then trying to execute uh, on, on your original plan. And the trade-off there, you know, was that it could be a little bit constrictive. A lot of us felt uh, when it came to mid and late game decisions that you really didn't have as many options as it might appear. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it, it did have it did have this benefit of forcing the forcing that kind of uh, you know deep understanding of the systems. I kind of felt like Brave New World uh, loosens a, a lot of that up, and I'm curious how you know. First of all, whether you sort of agree with my characterization of the trade-off Civilization Five imposed, and then how you went about uh, sort of looking at that design and deciding how to uh, how, how to open it up a little bit without compromising its integrity. Okay, I think I think what you've uh, characterized is is entirely fair. I, I think. There was a lot of um, early decision making about victory types, uh, and for instance, the culture victory, which pretty much uh, required uh, empires of uh, you know say four or fewer cities. That was definitely a situation where you know you had to make that decision up front. If you started settling a fifth or a sixth or a seventh city, you had already sort of decided you were going against that victory type, and those were exactly the kind of you know, like uh, constraints we wanted to eliminate. We really wanted with Brave New World, we wanted that decision point about which victory type you're going to to be um, made possibly as late as right when you get to the modern era and you decide which ideology you're, uh, you're choosing. If you have looked at Brave New World, you'll see that each of the ideologies supports three of the four different victory types. And so it's at that point in time in the game you really have understood the diplomatic landscape of uh, what the other players are like, which ones are going to be friendly, which ones are going to be uh, your antagonists uh, most of the game. You kind of have a good idea maybe what type of victory they're well prepared to pursue. And it's at that point where you can really strike out and decide, okay, this is the one I'm going to commit to and go for. So that's you know probably half to maybe even a little bit over half of the way through the game is now really where you're committing to your victory type. And I've had Brave New World games where I thought I was going for one type of victory after making my ideology decision, and really an error or two later, I had to make a final last-ditch effort to switch things up. Sometimes, you know, maybe a Civ is about to win, and maybe you need to use the World Congress to block that, and so you need to slide in on a different path. So those kinds of things are all possible with Brave New World. That's something that we really felt was important in terms of making the late game much more interesting and engaging. Uh, it, kind of the number one goal for the expansion was to make sure that 
people finished their Civ games because they felt like this back half of the game was actually the best part of the game as opposed to previously where everyone sort of emphasized the beginning. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about just the the whole end game issue for Civilization. I, I sort of felt like uh, this was addressing not just uh, issues that were unique to Civ Five, but really, uh, you know, how to make the end game of a Civ game interesting has been an issue that's always kind of dogged this franchise. I'd say. Um, and I, I, I'm curious, is, is, is this the product of, is, the, is this an expansion that really came into view just with regard to improving Civilization V, or is this kind of a chance, was this kind of a chance to handle uh, things that have maybe always driven uh, you for Axis Folk a little bit crazy about your uh, signature series? I, I think you're entirely right, and... I know Civ 3 was when I really, really got involved in the series, and I did a lot of work on Civ 3 Conquests, and so I was playing Civ 3 over and over again at that point in time, and I found Civ 3 to be somewhat maddening in terms of just the number of different moves that it took just to manage your empire late in the game. Uh, it was very, very difficult, I found, to ever finish a Civ 3 game all the way to completion, and... You know, I think it's improved a little bit with Civ 4 and Civ 5 um, in terms of the pacing there and just not having quite as many micromanagement tasks to, to make those turns just really, really long to play through. But I, I don't feel like um, we've really addressed uh, making the end game engaging until here with Brave New World. And I, I think it's, it's tough developing a game like this because, you know, everyone... Uh, wants to start, you, you want to have an empire that you build all the way from the ground up. Um, and so just in testing and iterating on the game, you're just naturally going to get a lot more iteration on the beginning of the game. And so it's just difficult to get the right focus and attention and systems that are working properly into the late part of the game. But now we've been working with Civ 5 for, you know, coming on to probably five years, if you consider all the time we spent developing even before the original game came out. And we, we have a pretty good understanding of how the late game unfolds. And so it was, it was easier to kind of find the right levers to make that part of the game a lot more interesting and engaging than it had been. Something that I, I've noticed with Civ Five is with Brave New World especially, is, is that uh, it, it really sort of lifts a lot of the restraints on running a big empire. That, that uh, the culture penalty has been sort of... Um, uh, decoupled from the culture victory, and it it sort of seems like the, in in this at least you're you're flying a little bit in the face of uh, what seems like it's been a, a long trend actually in, in civilization game design, which is sort of um, addressing the problem of larger empires just being able to roll over everyone just by virtue of their size. And I'd love to hear you talk about you know basically balancing those values where uh, on the one hand you don't want it to be like Civ 2 where he who has the most big cities is going to win the game uh, but you also don't want it maybe to be as uh, constricting as uh, you know Civ 5 could originally be with how severe that culture penalty uh, could be. I'd just love to hear how you approached, uh, approached this problem. Yeah, it's been something that's been a design goal. John put in play right from the very beginning that he wanted wide and tall which are the you know what the words adjectives we use to de define those two strategies we wanted those strategies to be balanced and have um, 
equal validity in the Civ Five world. And the one thing I didn't want to have with Brave New World, though, is I didn't want that restriction that you had to go tall to win a culture victory because in Brave New World, a culture victory is all about creating an amazing um, set of cultural works and housing them within your civilization and then kind of spreading that world out to the rest of the uh, um, empires on the globe. And it seemed that, you know, that, that small insular empire that wasn't interacting with the rest of the civs was, was not the way we wanted to go. So we definitely uh, loosened up a lot of the um, constraints on the culture victory and we definitely reward you for, for building perhaps a large empire to go for culture. But I am noticing right now that there's been, you know, it's uh, Brave New World's been out for a little over a week and all the community and forums are diving in trying to um, figure out what the correct strategies are and there are some really active threads right now out there where they're discussing what's the right size for a culture victory and nobody has been able to really put their thumb on on the answer to that which which I think that's great that's there's, there's nothing obvious people are finding that there are ways to win with a large cultural empire there's still ways to win with a small cultural empire and having that kind of flexibility in terms of what your path through the game is um, is sort of exactly what we're going for the other thing to remember is that we did put a, a new constraint, even though we eliminated these cultural victory-related constraints for going large, there's a new science constraint on going large. And now there is a 5% um, science uh, cost increase for each technology for each city that you found. So we actually, that's one of the things we're looking at real hard in terms of determining exactly where the game balance is right now. And it is noticeable that the technology acquisition rate has slowed in Brave New World, which is something we wanted. We wanted the games to go deeper into the 20th century than they had before, but that perhaps may have slowed a little bit too much. We're, we're getting a lot of reports, and I'm even playing a game right now where I'm uh, like in the 1980s, but um, the technology's maybe 15, 20 years behind where it should be. And that just takes a lot of balancing. I mean, every time we release an expansion or our base game, we know that once it gets in the hands of hundreds of thousands of people, there's going to be strategies that start to come forward and bubble to the top that are better than others. They're going to find exploits in our mechanics, things like that. So uh, that's why we, we love that 2K allows us the freedom to continue to balance the game with patches as we go forward. And uh, this might be one of those situations where our science tweak might be a little bit too much. Uh, the fans are still unsure about it, uh, which is good because that means it's not too far off, but might need to tweak it just a little bit. I'd be interested to hear you guys talk a little bit about sort of the role of history in in forming your design here, because certainly it it seems like Brave New World. Well, I mean, right there in the introduction, I mean, it's it's entirely about uh, sort of uh, you know twentieth century movements, uh, developments in, in human history, uh, and and yet at the at the same time, I, I would say civilization has been pretty firmly divorced from historical reality. Uh, for quite some time. So again, I'd, I'd just love to maybe hear you guys talk about how you took inspiration from the historical record, but then kind of turned that into a, a very different, a, a game that plays out very differently from anything resembling history. Okay, well, I think probably where I should start is just to give a little bit of my background. Yeah. In the, um, uh, when I was in high school, in uh, right around 1980, um, I actually 
took a course that was a Russian studies course. It was primarily a history course, but it was all about um, you know how the Russian uh, nation had developed, how they had gone into communism, and uh, kind of traced all the way from the czars in through the Soviet era and up to the you know uh, where where we were at right then. And if you know the '80s and the, that was the beginning of the Reagan era. Um, Everything was about the evil empire and the axis of evil and uh, the uh, kind of Cold War mentality was firmly in place across uh, everywhere on the planet. And um, I had the opportunity of my senior year in high school to do a two-week study trip to the Soviet Union and found that just to be so fascinating in terms of the, the cultural differences between the Western world and the Soviet world that I ended up uh, one of my two majors in college was a, a Russian language and literature major. Uh, my other one's computer science, which has a lot more day-to-day -day application to my uh, work here at Veraxis. But that Russian language and literature uh, major came out of sort of a fascination that there could be another place on the planet that was so different than the Western world that I was accustomed to. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan in terms of the way they set up their society over there, but okay. I thought it was fascinating to kind of try to understand how that had come into being. And so sort of with that backdrop, um, and actually John had already introduced in the very uh, beginning of Civ Five the idea of having three different late game social policy trees that were contradictory to each other. We've always had an autocracy and a freedom and an order tree. Right. Um, but I just wanted to, the idea of trying to be able to role play as what we call an order civ, but basically as a, as a communist power that's trying to unite the workers of the world and go ahead and form that workers utopia that Lenin and Trotsky and those guys had originally said was going to be possible. Um, that just seemed like a really, really interesting way to be able to play in the whole arena of a civilization game. And so kind of, I took that, the, the kernel of that idea and just started expanding it and working with it in Brave New World um, before I knew it was going to be called Brave New World, but that, that just seemed to be also a good title for the expansion because um, it sort of has perhaps optimistic overtones and, and, and feelings to it, but also has sinister overtones in terms of if you read Brave New World, it's really a dystopia about a big centralized government structure that's sort of gone crazily uh, down a wrong path. So you throw all that together and all of a sudden there was a lot of real world history, a lot of things that I had experienced firsthand that I felt like could come into the civilization world and make it very, very interesting. And that's what's so great about Civ as a whole, you've got this whole expanse of, of human history for in terms of, of game systems. You know, they're all basically, if you, you tear them down and you take away the politics, they all seem like situations that you can recreate in a game. And that's what's great about Civ, because while, while we can recreate human history in our own image any way that we want, we have all these things that we can insert along the way that kind of mirror things that happen in the real world. The player can identify with them. It's a lot of fun to see if you can have things come up differently. It just gives us a lot to work with. Yeah, as far as that, as far as the tone of optimism, yeah, that hasn't come through in my games at all. Uh, certainly, my games have gotten uh, a lot bloodier overall than uh, they they were in previous versions of this game. Uh, and I, I'd I, I'd love to 
ask you guys whether or not you foresaw exactly how much more incentive there was for military activity uh, in in this new expansion uh, than than in any of the previous uh, versions of Civ Five. The uh, the funny thing is is that if you actually go and look at Civ fanatics, they they think we have the opposite problem with Brave New World. They think that. We uh, made AI changes that made the, the world not go to war anymore and that we're catering too much to the peaceful player by giving all of these tools to help avert war and make fighting wars uh, harder. So it really just kind of shows that um, different play styles are floating out there uh, definitely all over the place. Uh, you've experienced a lot more bloody wars. Um, so I guess it just depends how the game really pans out. The one thing I will say is that being that this is the second expansion, I felt it was really cool that Ed was able to stretch his legs and really maybe put in something that's not quite as optimistic. I mean, when we're talking about the ideologies in the world kind of splintering into these three for these three factions, that's not exactly the uh, the idealized version of this future where everybody's kind of holding hands and then actually kind of might spark some additional confrontations. But being that this is the second expansion, I think we can actually get away with that. People have been living in this idealistic vision for a very long time, and injecting a little bit of this reality, we thought would really introduce some really cool... Uh, gameplay differences. Players are not necessarily tuned to that, and we're seeing some of that on the forums as well, where people think that this is a whole new way to look at the game. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with this. I have to change the way that I play. So we, have, we actually like the, the effect that that's had for a lot of people. The other thing about the uh, warmongering and, and whether the game is, is more bloody or whether you know more, it's more peaceful, I think probably the one thing that is true about Brave New World is the points where the wor- world gets really bloody and the wars really start up have moved a little bit um with the patch that we put out for gods and kings uh in the fall we had uh, made sure that the ai was good at pouncing early on a player that maybe had a weak military um, but part of the way it was doing that was it was really really aggressively spending its gold and buying an army very quickly and that left it in not as good a position in sort of the brave new world um, new economic system for it to kind of be able to compete long term. So we definitely throttled back its uh, great love of the early rush attack for Brave New World. But what we have done is set it up so that later in the game, especially once the ideologies come online, and a little bit with the religions in the middle of the game, uh, sort of in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, those are the periods where conflict uh, can come fast and furious. Going back to what you were talking about uh, with with some of the influences for this game and your, your experiences, uh, you know, looking at looking at how the world was divided in, in the '80s, something I found really interesting is just that the ideologies and the way they provide bonuses to civs uh, seems very reminiscent of uh, the way religion uh, wor- works in this game, and it very much seems like. Uh, there, there's there's sort of a comment there that like you know the early, the early game civilization buffs are coming from uh, whatever faith you choose and and whatever uh, belief systems associated with that faith and then the late game it happens again but this time it's under this sort of uh, you know rationalist model uh, of uh, you know organizing principles for an entire society but the the effect is is uh, you know almost indistinguishable. And that's probably um, comes to a large extent from the fact that I was the lead on each of those systems. So in Gods and Kings, I, I definitely was pushing, um, you know, making 
religion, the way you can sort of put your stamp on your uh, culture and kind of configure your society and, and your empire uh, to have just the right kind of bonuses that you needed uh, to pursue the path you wanted in the game. And a lot of people wanted religion to go deeper into the game. We had people who really wanted religion to go all the way to the end and have it become, um, you know, like a religious victory would be possible and it would be sort of the thing that would carry your people all the way forward. We even had some people suggesting to us that maybe religion should transform into more what you were talking about with different lines of rational thought. Um, but what we felt like was, uh, it was it was better just to have religion fade out and then bring another system online. And yeah, we, just for familiarity of the players, we did set it up so there definitely are some similarities in terms of your ability to bit by bit be able to configure it and uh, select those bonuses at the right time. Um, but we definitely felt like it was better for them to be two systems because in a civilization game, you, you have like early game effects that you want to bring online to kind of help get your civilization up and going. But then you also have those kind of late game effects that you want to sort of um, help you kind of make that final rush to victory. And those are two different types of, of bonuses or buffs that you'll need to, to have. And so having them uh, brought to you by two different systems, uh, I think is working out real well for us. You actually mentioned gods and kings there, and that's something I wanted to get into a bit. Is that while I, while I liked that expansion, uh, you know, just fine. It it, it my, my complaint with it at the time was it just it just didn't go far enough for me. I just I, I felt like it had made some very sort of small changes to uh, to to Civilization Five, uh, even religion, uh, which was super. I felt superficially a huge change uh, in terms of how the game actually played out. It, it didn't make a, a huge amount of difference, but it sort of seemed to me like when I saw Brave New World that. Everything that was in Gods and Kings sort of came into its own and took on this entire new set of uh, consequences and uh, implications. And honestly, looking at Brave New World, it feels kind of like this is a complete design that uh, was sort of, you know, created from Civ Five, and this is sort of the complete uh, update and expansion. I I'm, I'm curious when you when you did Gods and Kings. Uh, did did you have any did you have any of this mind like did you have an idea of where these systems were headed, or did Brave New World sort of flow from where you left off with uh, Gods and Kings? Keep in mind that um, when Brave New World released, there's uh, there's been about six years of total Civ Five development that occurs. Mm -hmm. So as we're going through the process, especially with all the changes that John Schaefer made for the base game, you have to temper yourself a bit because you're making these big huge changes. And you can either go super de super deep, like for example, if we had all of Brave New World and Gods and Kings content in at the very first edition of the game, you'd make some hardcore fans extremely happy, and you wouldn't be able to introduce anybody new to the game because it's at that point by the second expansion, you've got a very deep, complex game that people need to know or need to be aware how to play. Now, in terms of the planning for something like this, that doesn't happen at all. And that's, that's the bottom line truth. It's you finish the game, you put everything into it you think you can with the time that you have, and then you release it, and then you see the fan feedback. You start to get more ideas the more that you're playing it. And that's actually how Gods and Kings actually spawned. And it started to have ideas about how you could actually do a religion where it might be kind of cool in the game. Maybe introduce a little bit of espionage on the side, uh, the city-state quests, and it all kind of happens naturally. And at that point in our development, Brave New World wasn't even on the radar. We weren't even necessarily considering it. 
It was after we released Gods and Kings, we saw the feedback, we saw everything that was happening, we continued to play, and then these new ideas start coming up. We see that, well, now culture, the culture victory just isn't very compelling. It's not very interesting compared to everything else we put in the game. And Ed's brain started working on that, seeing what he could come up with in terms of his whole great work system, tourism. Uh, we had a lot of fans that were asking for a World Congress United Nations system, so we really started going down that, uh, that uh, route as well. And Scott Lewis had come up with this trade route system that we think works really well, a nice on-the-map way uh, for you to actually make money and connect with other civilizations, and that worked out. So a lot of it just comes from iteration and from playing and from feedback. Uh, we'd love to say that we started out six years ago with all of this on one big blueprint, but it just uh, it just never happens that way. I think one thing that was definitely a factor working in in our favor was we were, had a very, very consistent uh, team of people working on the gameplay uh, throughout the last two years with Gods and Kings and with Brave New World. And so there were systems that were brought online for Gods and Kings that we were already very, very familiar with, very uh, comfortable tweaking and adjusting. And so as we brought new things into uh, Brave New World, a great example is the trade route system, we just naturally, we, we sort of brought in online the very simple version of that, and then we said, how can we take that to the next level by hooking it in with existing systems? So you can see in the trade route system that there are hooks, so religious pressure sp spreads along that system. You can see in the World Congress that ties back to world religions and world ideologies. And so all the systems, we, we kept interrelating them and hooking them back together and opening back up those systems from Gods and Kings and augmenting them more so that they played even better in the Brave New World universe. And so it was sort of two years of constant iteration by exactly the same uh, group of uh, designers and, and gameplay programmers uh, that really culminated in, in what we have here with the Brave New World release. It's really an extension of the iterative process that we have at Firaxis. We could, we could have worked on SIP by base game for an eternity, but what it really takes is just constantly updating and constantly playing the game. And that actually shows with the steps that we took for Gods and Kings to bring it up to a certain new level, the steps that we took for Brave New World, and we took it up to an even new level. I think just time, the time that it takes to just sit there playing the game really helps just bring out all this great new gameplay that we have in a, in a platform like Civ 5. And I think one last thing to add is a lot of the fans are like, well, why didn't they have all this in Civ 5 when it released? Vanilla should have been just like Brave New World was. But I don't think there's a huge amount that we learned from the process of releasing a game, putting it out in the community, getting the feedback from the fans, really understanding that feedback, then going back in and experimenting some more and layering new systems on top of that. Uh, so that we, we really feel like to some extent, we had almost four different releases to the community because we put out the original game. Then we spent a year working on DLC and improvements to the gameplay during that year, and we got a lot of feedback during that period as well. And then Gods and Kings maybe was a third release, and Brave New World is like a fourth new release. So each of, the, each of those times, we're um, not only putting out a new product, but we're also gauging exactly what's working, what's not working, what could be improved. Uh, what needs to be flushed out a little more. And so it's it's that iteration both internally and with the community that really, uh, I think, has gotten us to where we are right now.
so you you mentioned you mentioned the trade route system and uh this this is just a a this is one of the our favorite new new features of the game when we were talking about it uh last week on the show uh it, you know I, I think our friend Rowan Kaiser called it a sort of the, an unqualified success and uh i i would just love to hear you get into uh you know sort of the thinking behind the trade route system and uh one thing that impressed us all is that the trade routes sort of remind you uh, that they exist and sort of remind, like, ask you to manage them at these really nice intervals when you might actually naturally want to reconsider what you're doing with your resources. And, uh, you know, it, that just seems to me like that's something that is so hard for a lot of strategy games to get right is, is that balance between having something that's just sort of taking place behind the scenes that you forget about, but can be hugely important and difficult to track down uh, versus sort of forcing the player to micromanage. And it just seems like with that system, you sort of alighted in this position where it's like, okay, yeah, the trade route has been operating for a little while. And yeah, this is a good time to rethink. Is that just a product product of, of play testing? Uh, you know, what, what, like what sort of, what sort of, um, like research goes into figuring out when players sort of need to be uh, nudged about what what they're doing. Yeah, that system took a lot of uh, iteration. We knew uh, we've been kind of uh, been consistent throughout Civ Five that we didn't want any system that required an excessive amount of micromanagement, and what we really wanted to avoid is any system where that it paid for you to go back and check up on it every turn. Um, one of my biggest problems with some of the very early Civ games was they, they had map trading. And map trading was something that every time you explored the world, you got that little incremental boost to how much of the world you knew. And now your maps were worth just a little bit more. And so you it, it um, could always milk a little teeny little increment of gold out of all the other players in the game if you went ahead and traded your map each turn with them. There was also tech trading in some of the older Civ games where the turn that you researched the technology, you had to go out to every single Civ in the game and figure out exactly you know, what you could get for that and whether you wanted to trade that new technology to them. And we've been sort of uh, very adamant about uh, avoiding that kind of micromanagement in Civ Five. anything where you have to go out every turn or you have to go out to every single sieve in the game uh, were kind of no-nos right from the beginning. That was just a design um, pitfall that we were going to avoid at all costs. So as soon as we came up with the idea of the trade route system, we knew right away that anything that you could cancel on a turn-by-turn basis and have to go reevaluate what your uh, best choice was now uh, was not going to work for us. So. We didn't know what the interval was. The interval now is about 30 turns, but we knew that there was going to be an interval and you weren't going to be able to micromanage these each turn. Um, a lot of um, the iteration, I'd say, on the uh, trade route system was trying to set it up so what you see right now, the different balances between the trade-offs. Do you go to city-states? Do you go to um, major powers? Do you do your trade routes internally or externally? Um, all of that balance that came bit by bit from playtesting. We didn't have the internal trade routes at all to begin with. We probably played uh, our version of Brave New World for, I don't know, three or four months at least before we even had the idea of doing the internal trade routes. 
But I think that's actually one of the most um, unique and interesting new things that changes the strategic paths and thinking in Brave New World because now you can do things like set up a colony on another continent and it's a city that normally would be this minor outpost that would take hundreds and hundreds of years to grow into anything significant. But if you can send trade routes to it and kind of prop it up for a while, all of a sudden, wow, you've got this great, strong presence on another continent. Um, so as soon as we, you know, there were several key moments in terms of a developing of the trade route system where we sort of said, aha, that was a really good addition. This is something that's really going to make this, this system shine. One was definitely adding the, um, the internal trade routes. And then I think the second one was when we, when we started adding science to it. We didn't have science on the trade routes initially. They were just gold-based. And we added science and shortly thereafter added religious um, pressure to them as well. And that just all of a sudden shook up the decision-making about where you want to send these in kind of a really, really interesting new way. Yeah, and it, again, that's it, it's also one of those systems that, that I would say sort of encouraged my games, I think, to maybe take a more combative turn. Because previously, you know, cities were kind of like these islands that just sort of floated out there. And there was this concept of trade between cities and everything in connection to the capital. But, they, they, you know, it was all kind of, if it, if it had tiles around it that supported it well, they, they just could kind of run themselves. And you didn't necessarily need to, you didn't have anything you needed to protect with a big army if you could just keep your relations up uh, and keep the barbarians at bay. But uh, the the new the new trade route system has really I find changed my perspective on the in, entire map really where where suddenly there's this uh, you know it's not just the borders of my empire that concern me but like there's this idea of trade lanes and and, and hubs that need to be protected and if something gets screwed up with them uh, perhaps I need to go be able to intervene there and it, it just it, it's 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 a really cool system and just it just it completely changes my relationship with geography in civilization yeah, I really like how normally in Civ 5 you, you looked at the map and the first thing you focused on were where are the land choke points mm -hmm. and, you know, like, wow, if I can get a citadel there, you know, um, I'm going to totally dominate the paths between this half of the map and that half of the map. And now you, I, I find that just like you, you're describing, my thinking is probably more often inverted and I'm looking for where all the sea paths are and where are the sea lanes and... Are there any one-tile-wide peninsulas that you can plant a city on, and all of a sudden now trade's going to come right through that um, canal-ish kind of uh, uh, sort of Suez Canal-like feature? And it, it's just great to have people thinking about the map um, on a whole uh, different level. Uh, in general, we try to, as much as possible, have our um, systems play out on the map because that's the game world that we want people focused on. And so the, the fact that trade routes is so kind of intrinsically interwoven with the map is uh, is a great part of that system. When it when it you know when it comes to um, you know thinking about sort of the the next stage for a civilization, I'm not asking about like Civ Six or anything like this. I'm talking about like when you release something like this, uh, when you released uh, you know vanilla Civ Five. Um, you know how 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 bruising are are the in, internal critiques? Uh, you know, Civilization Five was. I don't think I've ever seen a Civilization as controversial as Civ Five was uh, w when it came out, and it, it feels like here with um, 
here with Brave New World, it has become much closer to what I consider a traditional sieve, though, you know, obviously based on a, a drastically different design. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, internally, do you, do you sort of see the same camps pop up at Firaxis that you do, uh, you know, online at places like Civ Fanatics, where you have sort of defenders of the original, you know, Civ faith and people who like like the new stuff? Do, do you see, does that, is that sort of replicated internally among uh, among you guys? Not so much. Uh, when we're when this team was like developing Civ Five, everybody is is bought into that vision at that point, and it's not a it's not the kind of development environment where the designer is the only voice in the room. I mean, the entire team gets to contribute to to a game, so it does cut a little bit because we 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 follow our fans a lot and we love our fan environment, and that's where we get a lot of our great feedback from, and we always want to make them happy. So when you release something like Civ Five. And you see, civil, the like Civ Fanatics, for example, split into two camps. It cuts a little bit because you're you're kind of like a a kid that wants their parents' uh, blessing and says you did a really good job. So you want a little bit of that, and you want everybody yeah. to be doing it. It doesn't always happen, but um, you kind of make your decisions and you take your risks and you try something new and you lay it all out there. And what was fortunate uh, about after releasing even Civ Five, we we were still able to get a, a lot of new players that we might not have gotten another way. So it is kind of a, it's a catch-22, or there's a give and take there in terms of um, how much do you really want to uh, create something that's entirely for the hardcore versus how much do you really want to bring in some fresh players as well. So we, we always want to live somewhere in the middle while still making an amazing game that has a lot of potential for our hardcore players too. And it's, it's great that we had the opportunity to go two expansions in and actually get to that point where... Everybody now knows how to play Civ Five. There's there's very few stragglers out there that are going to just walk into it blind and say, "I don't know how to play." There's too many new systems, and that's really what Ed's had the chance to do with Brave New World is kind of just go all out in terms of depth and complexity for this fan base uh, for places like Civ Fanatics and uh, Civilization DE and all of our other fan sites that are with us in the, in the 2K forums. And I think what helped us through the the initial re- reception of Civ Five is that the team was really bought into this vision and maybe we hadn't fully realized you know what a one unit per tile hex based world with city states um could could ultimately achieve but you know maybe that wasn't all there in civ 5 but the team still maintained that vision as being a very very strong uh design and a strong vision for what civ um what would be great in a civ game so you know it was just sort of the fact that we had not everyone had bought into it yet just gave us a little bit extra incentive to keep pushing and keep going because we still believed in that vision and we felt like we could bring everyone else into to believing in it as well. Definitely. Is there ever a concern that when you guys talk about sort of uh, sort of following the fan conversation and with regard to a couple answers actually you have given me here today when we were talking about uh, when I was asking you know how much of Brave New World was already in your head when you were making uh, Guys and Kings it sounded like there was a little bit of uh, defensiveness just you know regarding that maybe old accusation that uh, you know Fraxis was holding out on the real design uh, and trying to parcel it out through expansions is there is there ever a concern that uh, you know, following that, following those fan conversations too closely can be, um, you know, d- discourage experimentation. Uh, c- can sort of have a chilling effect on the internal conversation about where to go from here. 
Um, not at all, honestly. I mean, that's what resulted in uh, in Civilization Five being the way it was. I mean, it would would have been a very easy decision for John Schaefer to build on on top of Civ Four, and that's it. And he and the team just decided to go in a completely new direction, try something really new, and just put it out there. And I think Ed did the same thing, not as much with Gods and Kings, which was just kind of building on top of what we have in Five, but Brave New World. He really wanted to try something new, and that included, you know, gutting the entire culture system of the game, which a lot of people enjoy playing. Uh, we follow the Civ, uh, the Civ fan forums very closely because we love being part of that conversation. It's also a great place to go to find, like, even just bugs. After we release Brave New World, we love hitting the community sites and the 2K forums and Civ Fanatics and just to see what people are running into to see if we can help them through issues. And we, we love being engaged. And uh, certainly everything comes with a grain of salt because everybody has their own opinions, but I think that that's never completely uh, had us avoid taking risks. And I'm sure you're going to see that moving into the future, that that's not going to be an issue here at all. Something I really enjoyed in Brave New World is it just sort of seems like so many cool ideas sort of recognizable from the history, I guess, of, of 4X at Firaxis are, are coming back into play. And one of the things I really enjoyed uh, doing in Brave New World was sort of jockeying uh, for position in the World Congress. It brought back a lot of great memories of sort of battling it out in the uh, Planetary Council in Alpha Centauri and trying to completely screw people with unfavorable global initiatives or defend myself from people trying to do the same. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's 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 another big change that you've you you brought into this game, and I don't think there was really anything uh, t you know too analogous uh, to it in, in Civ Five before. Uh, so I I just like to hear you guys talk a little bit about the, the decision to like create this basically an, you know entire late game metagame uh, that, that that sort of layers into this where it's it's all diplomacy driven based around uh, just a ton of policy choices that the entire world can make together yeah it definitely was inspired by um, you know that kind of uh, uh, alpha Centauri type system and the gameplay um, uh, engineer that was working on that system anton stringer uh, he admits that Alpha Centauri was one of his favorite games, you know, right from the get-go. It was one of the 4X games that really got him um, excited about, uh, you know, strategy uh, as, a, as a genre. Um, so there was definitely that influence. Uh, we also, I think the other um, genesis of this was that we had put a lot of work in Civ Five into the concept of a city-state and making city-states not only... Um, useful partners for to help you develop your economy. You know, maybe you're getting food from the maritime city states, or happiness from a mercantile one, or or whatever. Uh, but we also wanted them to be sort of the the diplomatic pawns that kind of got the world. Uh, you know, sort of like Serbia before World War One. This sort of brought the superpowers into these engagements uh, because fighting for control of that city state world was a, an important thing that you need to really do to, to get your empire all the way um, to the forefront of the world stage. So we had kind of kept pushing that idea of city-states um, and their diplomatic role. In Gods and Kings, we had changed the way diplomatic victory works and come up with a really interesting um, improvement to the diplomatic victory, uh, we felt like, where we've you know, yet again changed the way the, the voting worked. 
Uh, so we kind of knew naturally that we just had to kind of keep working with that system and introduce it to the player earlier in the game, right? With Gods and Kings and, and the vanilla base game, um, we always felt like that city-state voting mechanic was only useful for diplomatic victory. It was only a very late-game system, but it was a much more interesting game to play if you could play it for a longer period of time. So what we did is we moved that back all the way to the Renaissance and started up our World Congress there. Actually, while we were developing um, Brave New World, I think we originally had it starting a little bit later than that. It, it started more in the industrial era, but we kept finding, wow, this is a really fun uh, new layer of gameplay, a new way to change the world, a new way to upset the apple cart, so maybe that dominant AI sieve that you didn't feel like you could ever um, catch up to could have some brakes applied to it. And so we actually said, hey, let's start it even sooner. Um, there were enough real-world examples. Uh, we kept drawing on things like the Hanseatic League and stuff like that that were Renaissance-era um, kind of uh, unions between different uh, nations and powers um, as, as our examples that you know gave us plenty of justification for starting it earlier and so so we also found it you know that the, the more we could play up the systems and these types of interactions the better off the game was and um, as we were iterating on it not only do we move it earlier in the game but we added a lot more to the types of proposals that you could come up with initially I think we started play testing it with only about eight or ten different uh, proposals that could could come into play and we just kept working on it well, what about this one this one would be really interesting or this one ties in the religion system or the ideology system and so we just kept building on it and uh, that sort of got it to its form uh, where it's at right now when we were talking uh, you know when, when we were, I, I was on the uh, I was on another podcast with you guys uh, over the over the weekend the the polycast and you you guys were talking about this was sort of conceived as sort of the um, closing, the, you know, the, the closing bell for Civ Five, uh, as it is. Uh, now, now that it's been released and it seems to be getting a pretty good uh, reception, uh, you know, do you, do you still feel that way? Uh, do you do you still feel like, oh man, there's even more we want to do, or is this now a complete game in your eyes? Well, you know what, we we originally approached Gods and Kings the same way, um, but there was still a lot to be done. Brave New World was conceived that way. We genuinely did uh, really try our best with Brave New World to kind of bring the whole thing full circle. We wanted people to feel that there is an entire big satisfying experience there. Uh, we know we have a fall balance patch coming up where we're probably going to you know, add in a few other odds and ends and uh, tweak what's currently there. But, you know, you, you, can never, you can never tell, honestly. I mean, we see that the fan reaction has been fantastic. And we might have the same thing happen that happened after Gods and Kings, where we're just sitting here playing it more and more, and then realize, hey, but you know what else we could really do with this? We could do X, Y, and Z. So time will tell, uh, but it's nothing that we can really put our finger on and, uh, and commit to something like that today. And when it comes to, because uh, I just remember I wanted to bring this up a little bit earlier, when it comes to faction design, uh, to, to Civ design, it, it, it just seems like civilization... Five did a better job of distinct creating distinct play experiences based on who you decide to play uh, than than really any previous uh, civilization. And one of the things that really uh, you know tickled me in in Brave New World is uh, Venice. 
uh, and it's sort of the 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 one city sieve uh, that that can only sort of interact with the world through puppets and uh, outrageous amounts of money. And it, it you know, first of all, could you could you guys talk a little bit about about sort of uh, des- designing that sieve because it seems like it's kind of a a, a really risky sieve to design, uh, and I'm curious whether now you know now that Venice seems to work pretty well. Do you guys feel emboldened at all to maybe release uh, you know other, other other sieves that sort of break the rules in unusual ways? Well, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that. Originally, Venice was conceived, it was always conceived as like a, the possibility of a one-city challenge kind of sieve. Uh-huh. But we really conceived it to be kind of a hardcore mode. We wanted this to be, you know, a really challenging one to play for, you know, really senior players who've played for a very long time. And it ended up being just like one of the most fun sieve to, to, to play overall. It wasn't really having anything to do with hardcore. It ended up just being really, really fun. And um, it was a neat side effect to see how it all came out. We started with one city, then we had to answer the questions, well, what do you do with cities you capture? We puppet them. What do we do with the, you know, if we just allow puppeting, how is that going to, how are they going to compete? They need more money. We, we double their trade routes. So uh, we make it more like the actual Venice in the real world where they kind of rule the world through trading outposts. And we're going to do that by being able to make purchases directly in your puppet city state. So now you can field an army instantly with all this cash you've got if you feel the need to. You can buy your buildings inside all of these cities. So it, it kind of swayed from being a hardcore sieve to just being an amazing, cool mechanic sieve to play. Probably the best in the game. And um, I would say yes, it, it definitely took us kind of out of our comfort zone because we're used to just applying certain sets of variables to all of our sieves to give them personality. And this kind of uh, led the way towards saying, well, you know what, maybe we don't have to do it just this way. Maybe we can do something completely different with some of these sieves. It was just a great approach. I don't know if that has anything to, uh, to add to that. Yeah, actually, I remember right when we were trying to decide which of the nine sieves we wanted to have, I think we, we initially proposed Venice just because it was, an, you know, I'm, I have done a couple board games on Renaissance history, and I'm sort of used to knowing sort of what the power structure in Renaissance Europe was at the time. And Venice was a major player back then, right there with the Papal States in Spain and France and England. And... They were sort of the main foil for the Ottoman Empire, blocking a lot of their naval expansion into uh, the Mediterranean. And so I, I felt like they were a legitimate power. Um, and I knew them as the Republic of Venice that had outposts all the way down to Cyprus. And I, I felt like this was a, a reasonably legitimate empire for us to enter games. But some of the other people on the team were like, Venice? Why would we put Venice in? Isn't that just a city-state? Why would we even consider that? And I think it was out of that thinking and that little conversation that we said, well, what if they play like a city-state? Um, and that's sort of their hook. And uh, initially, some of the very early builds we had with Venice, it was very hard to do anything with that. We didn't have the mechanic yet where they could take over city-states. Um, we didn't have the ability to buy gold, to, to spend gold anywhere in their empire. It, it, it was very difficult at first. Um, right after we did introduce puppeting of city-states to figure out how you could defend those city-states because often the most important uh, way to play Venice is to find those city-states that are at a trade nexus where trade routes coming from that particular city-state can all of a sudden push your trade empire or the rest of the way across the globe and so those were great places to build your trade empire 
but they're often very detached from your original city and very, very hard to defend. And so you would puppet these states and they would just get clobbered by the AI uh, nearby saying, well, that looks like a very juicy target and it would take it right out. So it was bit by bit, again, uh, iteration on it. Uh, and uh, Knowing that Venice had these huge coffers with this enormous treasury and if we could just let them spend gold a little bit more freely than anyone else, that might open up some possibilities. That's sort of how we got them to where they are today. But it was a very fun process to uh, to to uh, develop Venice, and yeah, it definitely encourages us. It gives us some food for thought for the future. That um, the more we can push the traits of the civilization, I think Civ Five, like you said, did a great job of pushing the series a lot further in that direction than it had. But uh, I think we again just over and over again are seeing payoffs for. Uh, pushing on unique play styles. The civilization world is such a cool, interesting, dynamic world that if you can go into it with a whole different way to play um, and affect that world, it's always a fun experience for the players. So I think that's definitely something that, that we'll remember uh, from uh, our work here over the last couple of years, that the further we can push on those particular knobs, the, the more interesting uh, things come out usually. And as we wind this down here, what when you look at Brave New World uh, and the state of Civ Five right now, uh, what's at the top of your fix-it list? What are, what are the things you most want to address? Uh, you know, in in the next major update. I think what we're definitely looking for is um, just a little bit more. We, we came a long way with multiplayer in Brave New World, and the stability's there. And uh, there are a lot more features in terms of different new modes with multiplayer. Um, but we, I, I know we uh, mentioned on the podcast over the weekend that we are still looking at trying to fully uh, support um, like modded situations and scenarios in multiplayer. Um, and so anything we can do to kind of help vary the multiplayer experience and come up with additional uh, game modes that are supported there or, or maps or whatever... Um, I think that would be a, a really nice last uh, thing for us to, to get out with Brave New World here. Dennis, do you have anything you want to add? I would actually completely agree with that. Um, that, that one feature would be great, and it's something that we're, uh, we're already looking at. And um, like I mentioned on the other podcast, it, it all comes down to um, seeing how difficult the task is, so we're just going to have to try to tackle it and see what happens. My, my, my want-to-see-fixed-or-made-better list is actually a lot more... Um, Mechanical. I'm I'm the kind of guy that gets bugged. Or really, I shouldn't say it gets bugged because that's awful. But I get bugged a lot when I see actual bugs out in the forums, especially ones that just shouldn't be there. There's there's an example where one's been around for a while where a worker would constantly wake up from a barbarian threat that the player couldn't even see. Little things like that that kind of take you out of the experience. Those are the things that I've been paying attention to the most, just to make sure that we get all these things squashed heading into the. Uh, into the fall and into the holidays. All right, so that about does it for today's show. Uh, and Dennis, I want to thank you for being here and being such fantastic guests. And uh, thank you for a Civ expansion that I've enjoyed perhaps more than any other. Uh, so fantastic work, and I really look forward to what you guys get around to doing next. Thanks a lot, Rob. It's great to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again. All right. Uh, this has been Three Moves Ahead. As always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together. And we will be back next week. Until then, good night. <laughs>